Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com switch. That's mintmobile.com switch. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. friends and welcome to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi, banjo player with the infamous String Dusters, among other things. And I'm so excited to finally hit record here and to be jumping into the abyss with you guys to look at all of the many things that go on, not only inside the musician's brain, but also inside the musician's soul and inside the journeys of all kinds of really fascinating people their inspiration and the challenges that they face on a path to creating a life in music. For me, that path has been uh, really challenging at times, also really rewarding, and something that I've I've learned a lot more about uh, what that experience is about and what pushes it forward by exploring the experiences of so many of my amazing musician friends. So I'm just really excited to see where those conversations take us and 
I know that we're going to be taking a good look at the String Dusters world, and I'll be sourcing some questions from Dusters social media. We're definitely going to get down a ton on music, practicing, improvising, composition, songwriting, and what are the things that people do to move their craft forward. Um, We're going to talk about gear, instruments, the recording studio, all that good stuff. We're definitely going to get into some music business. And last but not least, we're going to look at life and how our journeys as individuals can often mirror our journey with music and how getting more deeply in touch with ourselves as we grow can really be the thing that takes our music to the next level. I want to mention really quick that part of what inspired me to get the podcast rolling here is my involvement with the Osiris Podcast Network. I've been working with Osiris for the past few years, and it's an amazing network of music and culture podcasts. And if you dig what you're hearing here, you can probably find lots of other cool stuff there that you would enjoy checking out. And I also want to let you guys know that I've teamed up with Diderio to bring you the first few episodes of the podcast. Diderio is such a great company. These guys have been supporting the String Dusters since our inception from before anyone had any idea who we were as a band. They've been taking care of us with tuners, cables, capos, strings, all that good stuff. And it's such quality gear. Their support has really been huge for us over the years. I'm sitting here in my studio surrounded by D'Addario gear, and these guys have a great new line of strings that have just hit the market, the XT strings. They're for acoustic instruments and electric instruments as well. I've got these strings on my banjo right now. With most banjo strings, I feel like there's some compromise between that bright, present sound that you get with lighter strings and that thicker, warmer sound you get with heavier strings, and the XTs really do it all. They feel great, not to mention the fact that They last forever, they're super durable, and they're available for a wide spectrum of instruments. So check them out. So as we're getting rolling here, I thought I would, for the sake of context, quickly take on a question that I've loved to use as a starting place with the guests who I've been lucky enough to interview so far. And that's the question of what's the starting place? What's the seed of inspiration that ultimately flourishes into a full-on career in music, despite probably lots of sound advice around you, it's really fascinating to me to think about that inspiration factor and the advent of that deep connection with music. And these are all obviously people who have some calling and some vision, something to say. And all of a sudden, there's this moment in your life when something hits you and you decide to drop everything and devote every ounce of energy that you have to writing songs or playing an instrument and doing that with your life. And I, I always think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And for me, that journey all started in high school when I discovered Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. And for those of you guys who are unfamiliar, Bela is undoubtedly one of the best banjo players ever and is probably the most influential banjoist, if not one of the most influential musicians of all time. He's just brought the banjo to so many new places and done it with so much conviction and vision and all kinds of different genres this amazing virtuosic playing and when I discovered the Flectones it just it blew my mind in every possible way and my older brother was a bass player so he was a Victor Wooten fan and we would go to these shows and it was just so unbelievably free the music could seemingly go anywhere at any time all these amazing creative cool compositions and that's to say nothing of the fact that the band was this incredible fusion band with virtuosic electric bass and this one-of-a-kind sound of the the synthax drumatar and then um, at different points during their career all these incredible players Howard Levy initially the man with two brains and then uh, Jeff Coffin and all kinds of amazing people in between Paul McCandless, Sam Bush, the list goes on and on and When I started seeing these guys, I was hooked. And then eventually I went to see them at the Knitting Factory in Tribeca. And I think they were playing two shows a night, three nights. And 
went to all six shows and I bought my first banjo the day after the last show and the the rest was kind of history I I just was consumed with it and so inspired went to college did nothing but play banjo and got my undergrad degree and then was the first ever banjo principal at the Berkeley College of Music and then after Boston I moved down to Nashville and started the infamous String Dusters and I can remember the time that my dad came up to Boston as I was finishing at Berkeley and sort of warned me that I better know what I was doing with this career in music and I had no freaking idea at all but I did it anyway and now my parents are my biggest supporters and I'm so grateful to have all kinds of great opportunities with the String Dusters, and I also get to work as a producer, and I have a studio here at my home in Denver where I work on music for TV and film. I do some work as a writer, and I'm really lucky. I love what I do. So follow your dreams, kids, and tell your father that you know what you're doing at all costs. So before we get into our first interview with Paul Hoffman, my good buddy who is in Green Sky Bluegrass, and it was it was such an honor and so interesting to pick his brain. Um, before we get to my hang with Paul, I want to just get into a quick bit of String Dusters Q&A. And I'm going to try and do this at the top of every episode. <clears throat> and the question that I think I saw the most of on the Dusters fan page on Facebook was about how we write the set lists. And it's a great question. It's definitely something that I have wondered about in terms of other bands and have solicited advice and learned from checking out the way that different people take this process on. And for the Dusters, so I write the set list every night. And I think one of the main reasons that that evolved that way was because since I sing the least of anyone, it sort of put me in a position where I could balance out the singers on a night-to-night basis. And... Writing the set list is a big one. That's your thing. That's what you play every night. And for us, you know, it's sort of a, obviously a situational thing. And I always reference back to the last time that we played in a given place. And we try to make the show different, especially with regard to the big moments of the show, the the first song, the last song, the, the big sort of signature jams. And then, of course, we are in that post-Grateful Dead music world where the fan base is not just going to come to one show a year or two shows a year. You've got people who are coming on tour, and if they're not coming on tour, they're streaming at home night after night. And so we are mixing things up significantly on a night-to-night basis, and rarely, if ever, maybe we'll play the same song two nights in a row if it's, you know, Rise Sun, the, the single on our new record or something like that where we're really trying to just get that one out there. But for the most part, once I've referenced the set list from the night before, and I'll also reference the set list from our last time through that city or area to make sure that we're not doing anything too similar to the last time through. And once that's all done, the set list writing always starts with what are going to be the big moments of the show that night. And I think that thought process starts around sort of what is the energy of the day and trying to stay tuned into my bandmates and you know in in our big jams there's usually one or two guys who are sort of taking the lead and of course we're going to divvy that up just like we do the singers but you know I I just try to sort of get a feel for the day and the room the city that kind of thing and then start with a few of the big jams and then you know we fill it in from there and Oftentimes, you know, the first and last song will will get slotted in, and then typically my bandmates will shoot me a text during the day to say, hey, let's bring this song back tonight, or or even if it's not necessarily something that's dropped off, this is just something I want to do tonight, so then I'll mix those in. And then it's it's really the balancing act of taking all those songs and finding a flow so that each set is its own little journey. And then as I'm making the set list, of course, I'm going to try to get my head around which songs can transition because we do a lot of transitional elements. And that's that's another thing that's going to be 
really different from night to night for those fans who are just tuned in all the time. And then we go to soundcheck. I try to get the list done by soundcheck. And if there's something that we're dusting off, haven't played in a while, we'll go over that. And then maybe a couple of the other songs that are in the set list. And then it's on to the production meeting. So about 90 minutes before each show, we get everyone together, whole crew, the whole band, print out set lists, and we go over the whole thing. Talk through the transitions, and I'll sort of throw out my general ideas. Sometimes I don't even have an idea. I know that one song can go into something else just by virtue of what keys they're in, but my bandmates will generate a lot of those ideas, and then... We'll look at the songs, we'll we'll swap some songs out, we'll look at the transitions, and we'll basically try to figure out as a group, the five of us, what we think the best way to present all of that to you guys is. And then we go out there and, and we wing it. And, you know, it's, it's hit or miss, and that's kind of uh, the joy of doing something that's so varied night to night. And then oftentimes when things go well... And they really elevate the music, and it's a transition between two certain songs. Maybe that thing will stick, and you'll see that start to appear on some kind of semi-regular basis. But there's a lot of stuff night to night that's just unique to that night. And, you know, I think if we're playing well and tuned into each other and listening, that those are some of the the best moments of the show, at least the most payoff for us sort of creatively. And then that mind meld, that's that to me, that's a big part of what being in a band is all about. And I just love to explore that try to go deep as a group and see what we can craft on the spot. So one day I'll have to give you guys like my top five successes and top five failures all time in the string dusters improvisational jam category. All right, let's get on to my interview with Paul Hoffman of Green Sky Bluegrass. Green Sky have been at the forefront of the evolution of bluegrass music for years now, drawing huge crowds across the country, and at the center of their sound are Paul's songs and Paul's voice. He's an incredible mandolin player and such a gifted singer-songwriter and also a great friend. I love this guy, and I can't think of a better first guest for Inside the Musician's Brain. So here we go to my interview with Paul from a few months back. Here I am afraid to be alone Locked inside this house It used to be our home Here I go thinking those things I wish I didn't know Okay, we are here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and it is my great pleasure to welcome my first guest, who is a great friend, great mandolin player, songwriter, and you probably know him as a member, the amazing band Green Sky Bluegrass. I want to welcome Paul Hoffman to the podcast. How's it going, Paul? Great, buddy. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for being here. I want to get rolling by... Just talking about um, sort of how this whole thing got started going for you, that is, like, music in general. Like, what what's the first experience or band, concert? It could be anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be one experience that, you know, drew you in to the point where you decided, I'm going to do this thing <laughs> with my life, with all my energy and craft songs and 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 a band that will reach out and touch people. What, what was that for you? Uh, for me, I think it's the, was performance. I did a lot of theater when I was a kid and stage performance. I started playing the viola late or in middle school or late elementary, whenever they come around and they say, Hey, do you want to play one of these instruments? I picked the viola. Uh, but before that I was like singing and dancing and acting uh, in community theater and school theater. And I did that with choir and community theater all through school until I was 18. Uh, also started playing instruments behind that and getting into music in a real important way, going to see fish repeatedly. Uh, and one thing sort of led to another, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I've told the story a lot of times of my, the mandolin sort of came to me accidentally. I didn't really know about the mandolin or bluegrass at all. Uh, and a kid who was younger than me in high school gave me Shady Grove 
And I started listening to that. Grisman Garcia. Yep. Yep. I started listening to that, and I was like, dig this. And I went to Hookahville to see David Grisman and Rat Dog and when I graduated from high school and saw Grisman play the mandolin and thought, man, that thing's cool. Maybe I'll get one of those. So at, at what point during that whole progression did you actually decide, I'm going to try and do this with my life? Not for years and years Tell years and years after that, I got the mandolin, started playing around on it, moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan to go to college and met uh, David Bont at an open mic like a month later, tops. I didn't even. So what year year was that? Would be like fall 2000. Okay. And, you know, I just got, I asked them if I could come play with them sometime and it just was really informal, like happy hour, like college porch picking and we would play open mics and they'd give us free beer and that just sort of one thing led to another in a real natural progression that was never really you know focused at some like end goal so you guys at some point during that you said we're gonna start a band we're gonna do this we're gonna rehearse we're gonna play shows and that was while you guys were in college i was in college neither of those guys were but yeah, we kind of were a band from the get-go. I mean, I guess that's kind of what you do right. with anybody. You're like, even if you're not a band, you're a band. Like, I'm in like eight bands that have never, <laughs> never performed like before. Uh, you get together with some guys. You and I are probably in a band that I forgot about. Well, we, we were in a band for a weekend a few years ago. Yes, that one. Generals. Bluegrass Generals. Bluegrass uh, Generals. Yeah, but it, like I say, it's... Um, it was also just natural and not intentional. Even just the mandolin, I look back and I think, like, what if I had never gone to that festival at that impressionable time? Or what if I had continued to just be a guitar player? Right. Like what would have happened? I don't, I don't know. So then was there a a definitive point along the road where it went from something more informal to something more structured with more of a goal in mind? And you said, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to be a band. (laughs) <laughs> uh, probably the bluegrass contest and Telluride that we won in 06 would be the best like benchmark for when it became more serious. Sure. We had not played, um, nationally like out of state out of Michigan very much before that point, we'd been going to North Carolina and trying to do the Asheville thing, uh, for a couple of years, maybe a year or two. And the Telluride contest was kind of like the pat on the back that made us realize that, Hey, maybe we're doing something right. People dig this. Maybe we should go play in California and Portland and stuff. So we did that and then it went well. And then it was like, well, now let's do this all the time. So the band contest was like a real turning point for you guys. It was a good thing. You know, I it like, we got some festivals and some like offers and phone calls because of it. So we got some like real sort of like career, you know, measurable Mm -hmm. success, but really the the confidence boost and, you know, the willingness to like dedicate ourselves to it at that point. Like if we could win a contest in Telluride that we admired as like the, sure. The best of bluegrass and just new grass, rock and roll, what we were weird bluegrass. Yeah. Telluride was like the place, the Mecca. Right. For those of you unfamiliar, Telluride bluegrass is, you know, for our scene, it's, it is the Mecca. It's the place where, you know, acoustic worlds collide and bands come together that are not just sort of measured by that bluegrass metric of technical proficiency, but, you know, they have the thing that I really associate so closely with you guys, which is, and this is makes a great connection to Shady Grove, you know, it's like acoustic music with a lot of soul and songwriting and feeling and the things that... Um, you know, in a world that's so heavy on technical ability, sometimes they almost seem to come second to how well you can play your instrument. But Telluride is such a proving ground, and the band contest there has spawned other professional acts too, you know? So I think that's really interesting. So you guys, you won Telluride, and then you were sort of all in after that. And then you were you were doing the thing. You were making albums. You were going on tour, and and then Anders came into the fold a little later than that, right? Mm-hmm. That was uh, so about a year later. 
New Year's Eve 2007 was like his first first official gig. He did some of that fall tour with us leading into it as kind of like a trial run. So that was about a year and a half later. Cool. But like you said, it's just once we started there, we still had jobs for a while. I think I worked a restaurant gig in Kalamazoo until like 09, just when we were off tour. Sure. You know how it is. But the, the, like you just follow the path like can we get a better gig? Let's take it. Right. Is it time to make a new record? Let's make it. Right. If we add one more show to the next weekend, should we add three more? Let's do it. Like just, it's not the path of least resistance. That's not the word for it. It's just the like path of least restraint or something like, well, and it also you just sort of follow it. It comes and you guys are lucky that you, I think benefited from, it sounds like the same thing that we, the string dusters often reminisce about how, we're glad we sort of plowed through that early phase of a ba- of being in a band, you know, drive all night in the van, <laughs> PB&J for dinner, you know, before we were too smart or whatever you want to call it to <laughs> realize like, okay, this is what we're doing with our lives. You know, this is what, you know, we only have so much energy in this lifetime to really do things and accomplish things and throw ourselves into. And it's amazing to hear that and reflect on the time when you were inspired, you know, you just had this thing, you didn't necessarily need proof of where it was going, but it sounds like you guys just, you had the thing, you had that connection to each other. You had that early response from the crowd and that's what sort of sets it in motion. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's fun to hear it talked about that way. We do the same. We reminisce the same way. Like, we weren't thinking about it. Everyone, you, even you were asking like, what were the goals? Like there weren't goals. Their goals were just to like do better each That's time, right. play better, make people like us more, maybe get more people out, you know, get more free beer, <laughs> whatever. A couple fans at a time, one person stoked at the show is enough. That's right. Night to night yeah. to, to go do it again the next night. So I want to, I want to come back to talking about green sky here in a minute, but um, I want to shift gears a little bit and just, get inside your musical influences and you know that that term is tossed around in a lot of interviews and um you know people are always sort of asking uh what are your influences and i think it's a really important thing to look at what is a city without its music the legacy of the new york philharmonic is incredible nearly two centuries of history that's a lot of music and a lot of stories i was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking i can't quite believe this is happening join me jamie bernstein as we explore the history of the new york philharmonic it's the ny phil story made in new york a podcast about a city its people and their orchestra Listen wherever you get podcasts. Because we as musicians, you know, what what we have, our aesthetic, our skill, our taste revolves around identifying the things that we love and then figuring out how to assimilate whatever it is that they do that we connect with into our own style. So who are some people who fall into that category for you, you know, bluegrass or otherwise, where you heard them and you heard something that you were like, I need more of that in what I do. That was a great, uh, greatly illustrated question. You just thank you. Poison there. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. <brother>. Coffee. Cheers. <laughs> uh, it is that too, and for me, like that influence from the music that I like is very important. The art I like. Um, I don't. There's a lot of examples of that in my world. I guess. I'd, and I mentioned before that performance is kind of how I got into it. And I gravitate towards that a lot with music. I like, um, I'm a big fan of technically proficient mandolin players and bluegrass too, but a good song passionately performed is really what gets me. So any genre, uh, works for that model. Um, I can remember a really specific moment that I went to see an arcade fire show. Mm, cool. And the crowd is way different than what we do. It's, um, you know, it's not as rowdy, but people are really engaged. There's, you know, a lot of fist bumping and a lot of the cliches that you hear about, but they do a lot of like vocal, like sing along crowd, sing along kind of stuff, almost like soccer stadium vibe. Mm -hmm. And it's really powerful. And the music isn't set up in this way. That's like verse 
chorus, guitar solo, verse, chorus, solo, whatever, like we do. It's all these solos and all these like intimate musical performances. And it's just all this like energy crowd vibe thing. And I remember thinking like, I want to write a song like this where it's just song power for sure. Crowd soccer stadium kind of thing. And, um, the result was the song windshield. That's got those, the chorus is just me woeing. Oh yeah. Um, and it's like total soccer chant or whatever, but you know, they're not the biggest influence for the question, but I, I remember specifically being in the crowd, looking around, being like, this is really cool yeah. and really different than what we do. And, but also just so engaged. Well, I love hearing that because that's like, that's a different type of influence to me and just as important. And again, totally in line with this idea of looking out into the musical world and saying, this guy or this band or this woman, this performer, whatever has something that I'm after. And I think in the bluegrass world, people think that's so much about the instrument and Mm -hmm. the things that are so similar to what you do. But it sounds like they helped you form almost like an early version of what you wanted a green sky show to look like. And that's such an important influence for a band, you know, beyond just how we play or how we write, you know, relationship. Yeah. And that, energy exchange with the audience and seeing it go down and then trying to figure out what part of that fits into what, what you do. do, Yeah. Um, same influences like fish is a really big musical influence and performance influence. I saw a lot of fish. I love the way that they improvise. I love the, I love the music. Uh, I love the way that they're just nerds about their band and like shamelessly are who they are. That's right. I love Um, that too. But for us, I think as a band and myself, I'd like the relationship they have with their fans is something I definitely learned directly from their book. That interaction, um, like also the personal responsibility you have to your fans as a band, um, what they're willing to do mm-hmm. when people, when there's a light show, like the hard lesson or, you know, we were talking about playing winter wondergrass when it's cold out, like all of a sudden the weather, the conditions get bad. You got to play better and make Mm -hmm. it more awesome. All that kind of like how to be a good band for your fans stuff. definitely comes directly from them. And what about, what about things that are more in the songwriting playing realm? What, what stuff speaks to you and, what part of that have you really made an effort and put energy into assimilating into your own craft? Yeah. Um, when I listen to song bands or songwriters, it's definitely that real dark, um, honest, emotional kind of writing that I want to project in my own writing. A Jason Isabel's Southeastern album was real big for me. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, Isabel's great. You know, I think sometimes now that I listen to a lot of Pink Floyd when I was a teenager, and that's all real dark and depressing, too. Uh, but the catharsis that comes from music like that is so important to me. And as you say, like assimilating it to our band, um, you know, real dark, serious, emotional music is not something you commonly find in the bluegrass world, maybe. It, right. It's more instrumental focused, like you say, or it's like these trad tunes where. You know, the lyrics maybe aren't as important. Um, maybe the darkness is there because there's like these murder ballads, little Sadie and stuff like that. But it's not lyrically driven songwriter music per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like somehow trying to assimilate those three things for me is what Green Sky is. Like the songwriter group that's like just a guy with a guitar singing something real dark about a dead relative or the pain of responsibility or something like that and then this real lighthearted, like improvisational rock and roll jam thing and then bluegrass mm-hmm. like, also to play your instrument well that's take right a, take a mean solo kid pick it <laughs> you know and so somehow balancing all those three things is that's the name of the game yes yeah, that's cool i love that and i think you know i i really want to get into the songwriting thing here and try and understand a little more deeply how you think about that and um you know those themes of loss or whatever they are that seem of their own accord dark in nature and even though when you're reflecting on those in song 
there is something, like you say, really cathartic and uplifting about that. You know, is that is that something that you think about, or do you think that's sort of the natural flow of things? Like, what are you trying to express when you're seeking to write a song? I mean, I th- usually I think I'm just trying to express an idea that's real to me. Um, and I think that's why I often... I lean towards dark darkness or even talk about it just as it gets an easy it's an easy in to something that's heavy it, it, just because it's emotional or hard to comprehend doesn't necessarily mean it's dark uh, you know and I had somewhere along the way decided too that just like happy things are hard to write um, because they sound cliche like I'm so happy life's so good that's an oversimplification but then on the other side of the coin like I'm afraid of this or I've done this and feel terrible about it. Those things are like real brave to say. Absolutely. And real, that kind of honesty takes courage. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I'm willing to sing that, then people are hearing it. And then as soon as they hear it, they're singing along. And then it's like they're confronting their pain. Yeah. Well, while I confront mine and we're all doing it together in sort of this safe place where music heals and you're there to have fun with your friends. But that doesn't mean it has to be light and irrelevant. I, I love that. That's so true when it comes to just life processing things, whether it's through song or internally, externally, whatever it is. Oftentimes, just giving a voice or some recognition to something that's really hard, <clears throat> really challenging, and oftentimes really personal opens the door for people to connect with that. And you give them the opportunity to give that thing, whatever that thing is for them, a voice, a voice and yeah. honor it and get it out. And I think doing that as a group can even compound the effects of that thing you know and and it sounds like that's that's what's going on at a green sky bluegrass show that's what's going on (laughs) (laughs) um so while we're talking about songwriting um tell me a little bit more about just your process like what what kicks off the songwriting process for you typically is it an idea does it start more instrumentally because you're you're so you're so great at combining lyrics and music to emote a very specific thing. And I, I really feel like that's one of your strengths and the strengths of green sky is to give these words a sound that helps to elevate their meaning. Hmm, Thanks. And I'm just curious, like what, when you're writing a song, what, what kicks that whole process off for you? Uh, It varies often. But this, the simple, most common answer is I sort of keep notes um, through life, you know, in my phone now. Um, I don't know that it was ever really, ever really on paper, but phrases that catch me, um, I started writing down. I remember I read about, I was reading a Paul, Paul McCartney biography, and he talks about eight days a week happened that way. <clears throat> and he overheard someone say, use eight days a week as an expression, and he the, contemplated the expression for a long time. And then the song came of it. Um, and it sort of heightened my listening skill to like, be aware of when things like that come out of conversation resonant or phrases, just things that express something something more profound than tie us together than we even think. Yeah. So the, I'll kick around ideas like that for a while. Um, and then I usually just kind of pick up a guitar and start singing or playing a chord progression I often, I I realize now that I don't really put a lot of thought into like the melody that I'm singing, Hmm. like not don't put a lot of thought into it. Just don't put a lot of like, uh, coherent thought into it or like a lot of focus. I just kind of sing and go for it. You just let that part flow. You don't necessarily, that's not the part that takes like real honing and crafting. Right. It's more like the word craft, the phrasing, chord structure, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then having made so many records, I've come to realize that I often choose real simple melodies. Like a lot of people I work with are like, oh, I would have never sang it that way four, Interesting. Ta- four times in a row. Interesting. So there's like a little bit of restraint maybe in my melody writing that's um, simple in a way that can be 
more emotive maybe or like more um maybe people can relate to it easier not like it's hooky or something i don't know i don't think about it a lot well it is it is hooky just so you know (laughs) (laughs) and i i get that with your writing and i i loved as i was getting ready to sit down and have this chat with you it was great just digging into all for money such a great record and a, a total success on all fronts that i mentioned earlier just the songwriting combined with the sound of the band utilizing every band's every band member's strengths to really bring these songs to life um and i'm i'm curious to know a little bit more about how the songwriting process sort of intersects with the the actual album making process so you know when you guys are getting ready to make an album how does it go down do you you get together and and sort of go through all the latest greatest songs you know over what period were those songs written like what mm-hmm. does that look like for you guys it's uh it's usually like since the last record period with this all for money record there were a couple songs that were a little older from the last record that didn't get used that I wasn't finished with uh, but it's very much just like a pre-production meeting where we go through the songs and it varies. Some songs are like really developed from myself or from Dave, like what we intend for them. And then, you know, if that we try that and if that works, then we follow that path and other things are real loose and open for all sorts of arranging. Uh, the title track all for money is a great example in a lot of different ways because it's this, it's like this idea that I had carried around for years. I was trying to like, this whole conversation we're having weigh this, the responsibility of success and like the burden of success and trying to weigh this idea and started to think a lot about like those early days where you're playing those bar gigs and you're just winning a fan over and how that's like real fun. And then you get to this point where you're playing red rocks and got people traveling in from all over the country and you're so grateful for it, but you also don't want to let them down. Mm. And this response, there's this thing that happens with responsibility and again, fear. Uh, and I was kind of trying to like figure out like how surrounded or like supported can be surrounded and like this negative positive of like all these people and all this attention hmm. and success. Uh, but I wanted to do it very carefully because in no way do I want to seem ungrateful for what we've achieved. And like, I don't want to go back into playing for three people at an open mic so there's no pressure or something that's not what i'm saying sure but just that like i have an understanding of this thing that exists yeah so this song i'm kind of kicking around this idea of it forever and all these little lyrical pieces are coming around and then one day i just i'm playing my guitar upstairs and it clicks and i get this idea for it and then it's this kind of folky bluegrass thing and then it goes to this like spacey uncomfortable like affected thing and i had this concept for how that like we would try and create discomfort with the music it's not like an aimless it's not a jam that's supposed to be like this improvisational musical thing and it's not just like a noise jam it's supposed to like create discomfort and then i like present this idea so so that's a very intentional moment where you're crafting the sound yeah. to illustrate what the words are saying. Yeah. It's like a real linear thing. Um, and the song didn't really make sense for me until I wrote the next part, which is sort of like, we call it the triumph chorus. Uh, like like the happy ending. Sure. Like where I say, and I'm sort of speaking directly to the fans. Like if you need a voice, I'm yours friend. Yeah. For something better in the end. And then when I came up with that part and it's like the four five, one, like the most like, Triumphant, triumphant totally. chord movement you could possibly want. I love that. Uh, and then when I came up with that part, I'm like, the song now makes sense. Sure. I can finish it now. Um, so like that one had in my mind, this idea, this linear idea of the way the whole thing would go. I explained to the band and they're like, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, and we keep trying it and trying it. I love what you said a minute ago about, sort of I don't want to call it the pressure of being in a band because I also and I know what you mean it's there's such a gratitude around the people who come out to see you guys play to see us play and but there's also a responsibility there Mm -hmm. and like you said I love you don't want to let them down you know and and it's such a 
sort of one of those fine lines of perspective in life where if you look at it one way, we have this amazing opportunity to express ourselves and emote these things and hopefully open the door for others to experience that feeling too. And that's, to me, I think such a success of connecting through song, through a band, but we also have a responsibility and we have, you know, a hundred shows this year or, you know, whatever it is for, for you guys, you know, where we need to show up and be our best. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you think about that? How do you make sure that that's all sort of going in the right direction and you're, you're doing this thing the way that you want to do it, the way that you feel like your fans deserve? Yeah, that's a hard, it's a hard question. Um, and it's such an interesting topic, which is it, this, the album has been fun. The song's been fun. Cause normally I'm a little guarded what I write about. I don't, really like to be a hundred percent honest. Like I always often say a song is inspired by something, not about mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. so that people can relate. But with this song, it's totally different. It's about this. It's about us. It's about you listening. Uh, and I've been talking about that a lot. It's been really fun because this conversation is endless and it's so, there's so many paradoxes involved. Like the fan who comes to every show in a week by show five, when you're tired of varying the set list and doing something special every night, I'm tired of doing something special every night. We're jokingly like, why don't they leave us alone? <laughs> but so that's the fan that you're, or the group of fans or whatever that you're benchmarking, whether or not you're being creative enough every night. Sure. You're off yeah. them. It's such but, a curse and a blessing to have these fans who, on the one hand, they support you so deeply but they're going to be the ones whose expectations are the highest. Right. And so at some point you're like, man, if they just don't come to the Saturday show, we can just mail it in and kind of do what we did on Wednesday. Again. <laughs> but then it's like, then the moment that fan's gone, all the little nuances that are like these creative little nest eggs you put in your show that are like something totally unique you've never done before, or like a jam hits a spot that it's never gone to before. You look out there for that fan and see if they noticed or like you look for the reaction and then all you've got, they're not there. And your little nuance that you thought was the coolest thing just went unnoticed. So it's like that there's so many paradoxes in or contradictions, blessing and curse, that kind of thing throughout all of it, that it makes it so interesting to, to discuss. Um, Well, and and you guys, you, you guys are clearly in a world where, Essentially, that is the model of the show. It's it's going to be something very different every night. Every night. And that really plays into this idea of serving these people with ultimate creativity. I'm going to I'm gonna make a promise to you that I'm going to dig down exactly. and do something new tonight. Every night. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, and then there's a part of that that's counterintuitive. You know, there's things that we're good at that people like that we do and why would we avoid that? Cause right. sometimes we find ourselves avoiding things that we do too often because we enjoy them. And then that's what well, that doesn't make any sure. sense. Like, Oh, we already played this song four times on this tour. Well, so we shouldn't play it this week, but it, it's like, we played it four times because we enjoy it and we play it well. And while we play it, people are having fun. So we're not doing it. Why? Right. Um, and there's not going to be any consistent answer to that <laughs> question. One person might want to hear, windshield even though they heard it the night before and another person is gonna you know go to the online forums and (laughs) and speak their mind and you know you can't please them all but it sounds like you know and i i love this and i appreciate this about you guys that it gets a lot of thought yeah and i I think the answer is balance you know and you decide you just can't please them all and then to reference the quote please yourself and i think that becomes the most important thing where when we're having these discussions, you know, we're trying to be creative and do something different, but if it serves the show or if it makes us happy, then we do it. And like, there's trying to walk this balance when like, when we make a record, we go out and play all the songs really regularly Mm -hmm. and sort of break the jam band model and go to more like a pop model. And there's sort of find the difference between those two things and the place between. And like, maybe there's a couple songs on the record that have that, pop approach or something that can be played every other night for a whole year. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, when I go see some of my favorite bands that are song bands, um, 
you know, the great example, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. Mm-hmm. I love that band a lot. Uh, every I maybe saw six shows in 2018 or something. Sometimes we were there with them. So other times I went to their Ogden show three years in a row. I went to their Red Rock mm-hmm. show three years in a row. Uh, it's pretty much the same show every time. Sure. With the addition of new record and new songs. Because that's what they do. It's their set. And every time I go, I love it. I'm not disappointed yeah. that it's like, I'm hearing Son of a Bitch again. That's right. the point. Exactly. That's why I went. That's what, that, like I say, getting back to sort of, you know, what sort of tipped this whole part of the conversation off is that as artists, that's your responsibility to figure out what you do. What you do, yeah. And it's not going to be what someone else does. And I think people who are immersed in sort of the jam band world, they come to expect this one thing and they don't necessarily understand that Nathaniel Rayliff is doing the exact same version of that thing just for him. For him, right. This is his art. This is his craft. What makes sense, what his people want, what sounds best, and probably what serves him most deeply is to do this show and knock it out of the park, you know? And everyone's... Everyone's different, you know, and and I know what you mean. When a new album comes along, all these new songs are infused into the set and, you know, it gives uh, fans from a world like ours a really good reason to come out and check it out again. Okay, we're going to hit pause right there on this great conversation with Paul Hoffman. We'll get back to the rest of this interview later in season one of Inside the Musician's Brain. But for right now, we're going to wrap up episode one. Can't thank you guys enough for checking it out. Episode two featuring Billy Strings is also live right now. And we'll be back with new episodes every two weeks after that featuring such an incredible lineup of guests. I really can't wait to share with you guys what I've been working on. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts and please stay tuned for so much more. Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.